Welcome to Don't Say NFT, the show where we don't say NFT. I'm Donnie Clutterbuck, and I'll be your host. Before we get going, I'd like to take a chance to thank CryptoSapiens, Bankless DAO, and our sponsor, Goshen, building a Bitcoin L2. Welcome to Don't Say NFT, the show where we don't say NFT. And there's, I think it's going to become more apparent as time goes on why this is. And there's actually going to be an episode zero that we're going to um, record at the very end of this as like a 15th episode kind of. And we'll talk about that later. But the first, the point of the first episode is to intro everybody as we move through the journey of what digital assets can do and wh- what we do with them and what they can do for us over the course of you know the the past and future. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna analyze like microcosms of what they do. And this is the macro episode. This is the like, there are so many people who trade NFTs. I said it again, but I'm not using that word in this context. So it's okay. You know, you know what I'm saying? There are people who trade assets. I'll use it that way. Who really don't have any idea what the underlying technology is. And that's not necessarily what's important to them. But if we're going to have the conversations we're going to have over the next like 12 or 13 episodes, um, I think it's important to find out what blockchain is, what it solves, why it exists. I was, I was thinking a lot about how to frame this. Like, like, you know, when you get to like your retirement party and you're like thinking about all the things you wish someone told you 30 years ago that you yet don't know, or like now you know, but like, what would you have done differently? I think it'd be really helpful to like try to dial back your first days in, in like the blockchain space. And what would you, what do you wish that someone would have told you is it was a really awesome first question to answer. But the thing that I wish somebody would have told me is what a blockchain was for. Why does it exist? Right? From that frame, I mean, there's a lot of ways we can problem solve knowing what the problem is in advance, or rather what the solution might be in advance, where you just throw a dart and you like see where it lands and you go, was that a good place for that dart to go? And in the other cases, you have a board, a dart board, where you're aiming for the center and you throw the dart specifically aiming for the center. And each is constricted in its own specific way. So I don't think there's a right or wrong way to go about this. I've just noticed that like we are in the the realm of digital collectibles and art specifically, not necessarily, although it takes place on a blockchain or on many blockchains, we're not in the blockchain business as much. But I think it's really important information. So something I've learned along the way, and correct me if I'm wrong or speak up if you think it's different, um, is that blockchain technology or a blockchain, the blockchain was invented to solve the double spend problem. Well, when we have... Uh, hard pieces of art or hard pieces of currency or hard pieces of music like records. Let's just, let's go with records as an example. I want to play a record. I get sick of playing the record. I want to sell it. I box it up and I ship it. And it has to go through the mail to a human being who then also needs a record player. And like, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of like physical energy that needs to be expended to move that record from one place to the next. Um, If that record could be digital, let's say in the format of an MP3, I could listen to that MP3 that I've downloaded on, you know, not illegal means or illegal means or whatever. And then when I get tired of it, I could say to my friend, give me a dollar and I'll send you this MP3. But I could also do that to someone else because I could copy the MP3, have two copies, and nobody would know this until it was too late, especially when they wanted to resell that MP3, that they are both the same thing that stemmed from one and now two separate people own them and their value has lessened because there are two of the identical things that stemmed from one. Well, how do you solve this problem? You put everything on a ledger of some sort. You have a bookie, maintain some sort of, uh, like in, in the way that betting would occur in like the 50s, there's a physically writing down, this person knows that or this person knows that and this is paid and this is not paid and all that stuff. And that would be known as a ledger. So if you make a chain of ledgers or blocks, let's say, because that's what they're called in this case, Um, You have a list of transactions that have occurred in a finite amount of time with specific uh, senders and receivers 
and style token or asset or whatever. And then those things are linked together by each one of them having a copy of the previous block or time period on them. So they're sort of inextricably linked and the longest chain of these things is the true one. And anybody validating these things is not financially incentivized to say the wrong thing. They're financially incentivized to say, to agree with what is uh, unanimously the truth. So I know that's kind of like a crash course in what a blockchain is. And if I've missed anything fundamentally important, please do interject. I'm looking at you, Quantum, uh, and Brandon, and whoever else wants to say something about this. But the goal here was to say, this is what a blockchain is. This is the problem it solves. What else can a blockchain do? And we can go into all of the, the minute details of the main topics over the course of the next bunch of episodes, but nothing is off limits here. Um, and I would kind of like to just go around the room and if anybody would like to introduce themselves and give us a fact about blockchain tech that they think is valuable, uh, hit it. The first person on my list, Mike Toshi. Spike, do you want to do you want to get up? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, dude. I'm I'm excited to see this show evolve. When it comes to blockchain, I'm I'm a trained accountant uh, historically <laughs> uh, in my other life, and just like just the fact that we can have a public ledger that is free, open source, public to everybody, I, the value goes beyond just having pictures on chain. Um, I think we're still just scratching the surface of some of the potential of that public verifiable ledger. Um, but ultimately that, you know, that that underlying piece is what got me so excited about Bitcoin in the first place. Um, there's a lot of things I wish somebody told me when I came in. But I think ultimately, like if we're just talking about like the context of digital collectibles, uh, I think it ultimately to me, it's buy what you like. Don't listen to other people. You know, ultimately, you got to take. Um, you, you you have to have your finger on the pulse of like what those you know the collectors are buying and what what's the hot items but i think at the end of the day no matter what happens with that piece as long as you buy something that you're that you're happy to have in your wallet you can't ever really lose and i i lost a lot buying shit that i hate looking at so that's probably my biggest regret since joining the space but you know as as a person in the space i've gone from collector to creator um, and I'm really enjoying that transition and excited to, to keep pushing and, and creating with all y'all by my side. And it's been a lot of fun. I would actually like to say on top of that, you brought something up that I totally forgot. I think, um, that this has removed a lot of the barriers to becoming a creator in this digital landscape. Like I said earlier, because the physical energy required, to start or move or trade or whatever to create is so much lesser. You don't have to go to the store and buy paints. You don't have to learn how to paint. You don't have to like, you have the other things that you can spend your time. Learn them are free resources. I mean, this Twitter space, sorry, Twitter space, easy now. This X space being free-ish is like like anybody having to having the, the wherewithal to want to start a podcast or to like create a space where people can go and talk about something in an uncensored fashion. That's not an $11 a month service anywhere or eight. I don't even know what it costs anymore, but like to get in a physical space and do that, or to, to make a physical space, to have an antique shop, the odds are not good that you're going to end up being able to do that unless you're like, you've been doing it. Your dad did it his whole life, let's say. So I think equity is one of the main um, point this digitally can bring up. Uh, Brandon, I saw you unmute too. You want to hit it? Yeah. Yeah. No, excited to be here, man. And yeah, I think I'll try to lay some foundation. So I was pretty excited when Swag Toshi started with being an accountant for some background. Like I got into crypto about six years ago, 
Uh, I was an industrial engineer. Um, for some background, what that is, is really we just sort of study how processes work, like what discrete steps are involved in any kind of complicated system. And this is really what made me really interested in blockchain because blockchain offers new capabilities that are impossible otherwise. And so I would frame this conversation by starting at, you know, they can do a lot of things, but it's important to understand why they do those things and like why we should even care. Um, and the cleanest articulation of this is the double spend problem, where if you think about how you would transfer value to somebody, like think about what actually happens here, right? It's like you have money in your bank account and I'm going to send, say, Donnie some money. You know, it's like who is actually sending money? It's not actual like dollar bills being moved. It's somebody in like an account or somewhere is flipping numbers and moving money into Donnie's account. But what's to stop that person from sending that money to multiple people at the same time? Like, how how can you do that? You know, like I can copy a file any number of times. There's no real security there. And so it's very difficult to send value in a digital space. So blockchain's innovation really was that it's a single ledger that can't be spoofed because it's defined by this incentive scheme where everybody is trying to do the right thing so they get paid Bitcoin. And from that, we have this ledger where you can send value and you can almost essentially create a money that exists outside of our world <laughs> that like is independent of people um, being able to mess with it. And this applies to the digital assets where now not only can you have money, but now you have these digital assets that can be discrete and unique in a way that could never be done in the prior world where you could say copy an MP3 a hundred times. And it's like, why would I want to buy this MP3? It's not even really from the artist. Well, now, you know, an artist can come out and they can create a digital asset <laughs> with their song and you can buy like one of 100 that they made and know that it was the one that they created themselves which can have some like particular meaning if you want to support them. So I just wanted to lay that foundation here for everybody. Something I totally forgot to bring up also, I'm, I'm glad we're doing it this way. I didn't really know what was going to be an effective way to go around the room, you know. <clears throat> the decentralization is kind of the concept that brings up the double spend problem to begin with. Because when you have a centralized authority, such as a bank, mitigating where things are going for you, you have the luxury of knowing that it's probably that there is no double spend. Your bank, I mean, if there is a double spend, it's a much larger problem. But your bank is incentivized not to do that because they're a bank and they make money off of not doing that. But in the case of a centralized authority, such as a bank sending your money for you, they now keep all of your money. That digital display on your screen that says however hundreds or thousands of dollars you have in your bank account is like not up to you. It's not yours. They let it be yours, but they don't really have to let it be yours when it comes down to it. So decentralization, which is one of the, the foundational elements of blockchain technology, kind of creates the problem that it is meant to solve in some strange way. All right. Who's up? English? Yeah, I'll be happy to chime in. So I'll, I'll caveat this with, you know, when you first approached, you know, with, with the series of shows, um, you know, you said, oh, whichever ones, you know, you, you, you felt qualified to, to speak in. And I thought this was just like an intro show. So it wasn't like a blockchain one in my mind, but I had signed up for it. And then I see like Chip, you know, who's a miner, potentially Cypher, um, you know, and Charlie coming on. So I'm like, I'm uniquely unqualified to talk about blockchain, but I'm happy to give you my perspective on it. Um, just being in the community, enjoying that aspect of it, having my own show, moderating for different projects over the years, um, and and what drew me into the space. So um, I was a collector, like many people that I, I found in the space and, um, you know, started, you know, in middle school, Magic the Gathering. I remember like even my first job, 
I would go on eBay all the time and I, I was into like music and, and, and systems for cars and all this stuff. And I would find out which, which amplifiers were kind of cool and had like some kind of like historic thing where people liked it because of some unique reason. And I would like flip it on eBay and all this stuff. So when I saw that there was like a digital type of way to, to basically transact, get like this cultural element um, to tap into, which has always been kind of part of my life and monetize it. That's what attracted to me. And that's a lot of the stuff that you've kind of mentioned in terms of uh, making it a little bit uh, more, I guess, you know, frictionless in terms of, you know, not having to physically ship something from that aspect. So then um, that really tied into with like the community aspect, you know, in terms of um, what this this technology specifically has been able to, I guess, um, foment in a special kind of way when we talk about the, the digital collectibles side of it. Because I think that's one of the cooler sides of the blockchain and digital collectibles um, in the unison that they, they create communities in a way that just the technology itself um, doesn't. So if there's any kind of topics that come up on, on that aspect, as opposed to the tech side, just cause um, it's not really my area of expertise, but um, yeah, happy to chime in on any other things. Nobody is unqualified to talk about this stuff. I know that each one of you has at very least a lot of experience and love for this community. And that's, it doesn't mean this has to be like a technological crash course on what a blockchain is. I just wanted to get that out of the way because something I've found talking to people over the course of the, you know, however many years I've been like obsessed with blockchain tech, the, the places that it's led me in the corners of things facilitated by blockchain tech are not places that are all educated about what it's built on. So like most of the people using, I don't know, say Solana or something, don't know that it's proof of history or what proof of history is or the big difference between proof of stake and proof of work. They're just they're They know that it's about energy consumption potentially. And that's it. Is that cool? MB, you want to hit it, man? What do I hit? You hit it, brother. Hit it. Like, who are you? What, I guess the question oh, we're, we're doing all intros? answering is like, okay. well, you don't even have to do that. Like the, if you don't feel like talking about yourself, which I'm sure you do, right? You're you. Why wouldn't you want to do that? I'm actually not um, good at talking about myself. That's something I'm trying to get better at. So like I, I enjoy listening to other people talk about themselves. Sure, it's a lot of I learn a lot. Yeah, you, it's topics. The last time I was on a space with you, you were talking about how you've been charging uh, to to for your PFP space, and that it's been a successful endeavor, and that you're going to quit your day job and move on to just. I know that, that was, was most of mostly. That was the most intriguing thing that I found by NB as well, and I see. I don't think I'm going to quit my day job, but that that oh. that contract did expire. Um, technically I, I, I can bring in a new one, but I'm doing a week with something I want just cause I want control back, yeah. uh, for like a week <laughs> and then I'll go back to probably doing that again. But like, yeah, man, I mean, it's, we're a dwindling market and I, I have the social capital. So I was like, I might as well, you know, use it as a, as a advertising space and, and that whole rabbit hole, like. It was a good point. Like I, I, I think if I were to drop a project these days, I'd rather spend the money I would have spent on a on a sponsored Twitter space, and and instead, you know, spend it on either a couple high value accounts to wear it, or a bunch of small value accounts to wear it. Because I think wearing the PFP goes a way longer way than it being talked about on a space. And I don't know. I just find in this market we tend to repeat what works instead of trying new stuff and. I, I think that's a new thing worth trying if someone's looking at releasing a project soon. This is how we um, digest information first and most of the time. There's always somebody talking in a Twitter space and sometimes people are talking over each other. 
but there are always PFPs up. And you're right. That is, there's a huge amount of social uh, and I guess just capital in general associated with that. So that's not like how I define you. I just remember the last time I like that you have a lot to say about certain subjects. And I didn't mean that you talk about yourself all the time. I would never say that. No, I mean to say that you, you I'm usually very have something to deep about the arts. Yeah, right. I'm very, so very question, passionate about the arts on chain. And, and I don't like how we've gone into this route of doing what works because it's easy. And I, I really invite a more creative interpretation of the blockchain. Like back in the day when art was the emphasis, we used to see like really creative uses of mechanics, not just in terms of drop mechanics, but secondary. I mean, there is this one with Dot Pigeon that was a, a dynamic piece, nine different seats, the ninth being the most graffitied of this uh, painting. And if you want to have, you know, a certain state of this graffiti painting, you had to buy it at a certain amount on secondary. So stuff like that was just like interesting and playing with like what's going on in the market and and all of that. And, and we've gone so far from doing what's fun and creative. And now it's almost like people are just selling their passion. So I, I am very passionate in the space, but I, I want to see it come back to pushing the boundaries of creativity and doing stuff that's cool, that makes us excited to be on chain and, and be like, yeah, like you can do shit on the internet, but like we're innovating in a way that's like exciting and different. And, you know, let, let, I, I, I don't think we should onboard people with our mouths, but we should onboard people with our actions and, and make a community where people want to be in much like, like the street culture, like, you know, back in the day, like if, if people were like, yeah, Supreme's going to be worth anything, they would laugh in your face. But like through being its its own kind of counterculture and, and being against the grain, they were able to attract enough attention to it where it was like, oh, you guys are doing something different. There's a lot of people who are, you know, around this and no one's really talking about it. It gets people to take the initiative to explore for themselves. And and we haven't really seen people do that in a long time. If there if there is something people can do, that, so it's only natural that we turn this into some sort of like horse betting game because that's that's what we do with it like we we will do that with anything you give us the opportunity to do that with but I, like i can go to art shows locally and buy things off the wall that are one of ones from a, a person and if i can't afford that i can buy their prints or i can just go to target and buy the frame and use the picture that's in it right like every piece of our life is already full of things that are sort of dispassionate and for money and for function maybe in some way and then there's a totally smaller, of course, subset of people who pay too much attention and way, or way more attention, let's say. And I think we fall into that category where we really want that to become common. But I think by becoming common, it wouldn't be that anymore. So I think it's really good that we have this sort of like grotesque showing of human weakness. And then we have this like very pointed, sturdy showing of human strength and ingenuity. And I think they have to coexist for either one to exist. So I, I'm both on your side and against it at the same time, I guess, in some way. Uh, Quantum, you want to go, man? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll touch on like three points and try to succinctly do it to keep us moving along. Um, the first is someone had told me something in the beginning that would be helpful would have been that essentially there's a separation from Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, you know, when I started, as some of you may know or know my background, but uh, I came or I found out about Bitcoin because I'm my background is in security and networks. 
And so Bitcoin at the time was like one of the only publicly uh, available applicants or uses of uh, elliptic curve cryptography. And um, so I, that's how I stumbled on it. And that then opened up a rabbit hole of mostly me just focusing on like the security implications that this has. Um, but it took an embarrassingly amount of time for me to separate those two things. Um, and this is at a point when there wasn't a lot of, um, there wasn't a lot of people or resources to communicate for this project. There wasn't books written. There wasn't all the YouTube videos people have now. So now it seems like people probably get that understanding pretty early. Um, but then, people were born into it though, because the, the way that you were viewing it back then, there weren't like a thousand altcoins at that point. There weren't a ton of layer yeah. ones except for Bitcoin. So like Jeep used to be the only SUV. So rappers in the nineties oh. called all SUVs Jeeps because it was synonymous. I don't think that's a mistake. It's just something that, you know, you were, you were around so, so early on that there were no other options really to view. Yeah. I mean like, you know, Litecoin hadn't even done a, a software fork yet at this point. Right. Like coins, I think were were not even being talked about, right? Like it's, you know, a long time ago. Um, but then to bring it back to blockchains and now like where we're at or some of the things that it solves, um, I think two of the most commonly talked about, you know, computer science or large problems that this solved is the double spin problem and the Byzantine general problem. Um, those do have aspects that work with one another, but they are two separate problems that blockchains can solve if implemented correctly, right? Um, the double spin problem is solved uh, particularly in, in Bitcoin using the, the nodes, not the, the computers mining, right? But it's particularly the nodes and the process of verification, verification and confirming transaction, which leads into the consensus algorithm. Um, and then for the Byzantine general problem, uh, the game theory there is solved uh, by using the hash power and incentive mechanism. Um, so you're now talking about the difficulty adjustments and the incentivized, incentivized structure of the reward system in Bitcoin. Um, so those two things in tandem kind of solve those problems independently, but then work with one another. And I think, you know, something that is definitely important if people are trying to learn about blockchain in general is, is learning about those two very core problems. Um, and in the early 2011, 2012, 2013, when I would explain this to companies or people or projects trying to deploy using a blockchain rather than like an SQL database is, um, is I would, you know, let them know that like, this is why this is needed over here. And are you sure you need those same solutions here? You can solve double spend on a centralized system, right? That, that had been done before. Um, you can solve Byzantine general on a centralized system. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're talking about like, what is money going to look like in the future, it will have to solve these problems in this way, right? So it may not be called Bitcoin. It may be called something else. 
And again, this is, you know, me having conversations 10 years ago is like, I, I don't know if this will be around for a hundred years. It just looks like it's going to. But what I do know is that these problems have existed for a hundred years, and this is the first application to solve those problems. So whatever you're going to use for some sort of monetary system, it's going to have to solve those problems for it to you know, work. Word up. Thanks, man. Um, I'd like to come back later on if we have time to what a node is versus a miner, because I think that's kind of a dis distinction that a lot of people don't know a bunch about. But we can get to um, Spears and then Cypher if you'd like. And the things that we've been talking about are I, we went over initially what a blockchain is and what it was designed to solve, more or less. And then I just asked, what do you wish someone would have told you when you were first starting out that took you too long to learn that would help anyone listening now digest the future material um, in the rest of this? So Spears, fire away if you'd like. Yeah. Um, if we want to talk about like what a blockchain is, you'll you'll get a bunch of different answers. I uh, I one of my favorite works comes. He's actually a, a very hardcore Bitcoiner and. Uh, actually a, a, a talk arguably toxic Bitcoin maximals, but he has a really good explanation of how of what um, Bitcoin is, which is that it's kind of like a decentralized clock in that it take it kind of records uh, the state of things as it goes through time. And so from a very high level, that's what blockchain is. it 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 allows a decentralization of timekeeping and ordering of of things and events. So um, then different blockchains have different like levels of uh, confidence that I would say of like, how confident do we feel that this is a decentralized way to order events? And we argue and pontificate about all these Bitcoin versus ETH, but um, it's very, it's very interesting because it's, it gets, uh, it always kind of gets a little philosophical and technical, but um, for Bitcoin specifically, um, proof of work being one of the mechanisms uh, that is energy into computation, into production of hash. And uh, that probabilistic block production is kind of one of the core components of how Bitcoin produces these blocks and keeps time. So that's that's just my first take at that. Yeah, I was just going to chime in real quick. If you look back on my profile four tweets ago, four or five tweets ago, depending on how you count the pin tweet, but Bitcoin, a machine of time, right? And that's, you know, a, a succinct summary of kind of how I feel about it. And I think your um, your colleague uh, Spears that you were talking to is, is right on. Um, one of the things I realized early on is this is a pendulum, right? It's like something that is accounting for time. And then, you know, what does that mean? And and then that led down the rabbit hole of the very like esoteric and theoretical things of like, well, if we want to have a time machine, we need to have first have a machine of time. Um, so, yeah, that gets down a, a weird, a weird wormhole. I'm sure that that I, I did have time worked into one of the episodes. I forgot which one it was, but I'll let you know when I think about where it best fits that we can do a deep dive because I'm sure we could take up the rest of the remaining 20 minutes with just talking about abstractly what it means to have so many devices over such a geographic area doing all the same thing at the same time and then like racing in, in a, it, it, there's I think there are a lot of implications to that. And uh, I just wanted to get to Cypher before we go down rabbit holes, but rabbit holes are welcome. So let's do it. Cypher, what do you wish somebody would have told you um, before, you know, in your early days that would have simplified a lot of your understanding of what was to come or to whatever else you want to talk about? What'd you have for dinner? Um, so I'm actually going to, it's not what I wish somebody had told me. It's what I wish people hadn't told me. Uh, I believe the first 
mining I ever did was with a little pool back in 2011, 2010. And it was at an era where Bitcoin wasn't the same as what it was. I was young and stupid. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's digital money. And I tinkered with it for a bit and then sold all the Bitcoin I had because if it's only the world's hardest money, that doesn't intrigue me that much because I'm not inherently uh, that associated to money. Instead, if I hadn't been told that it's, you know, oh, it's going to be the future of money, it's going to be money, 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 I would have probably taken the time to stop and go, no, this is this is the cryptography, like this is the cryptographic dream. This is the cypherpunk ideal as best as we've done so far in the modern world. To expand on that, that's my passion, to go back to what Indy said, but that's not everybody's passion. And I, a lot of people get caught up when it's money and they don't realize that Bitcoin can usually satisfy most of your passions in the digital space. Um, if you're an artist and you're, you're like, what motivates you? Your desire is to be remembered, your art to be remembered. Um, yeah, you can upload it to uh, to DeviantArt, uh, you know, whatever other site you want. At the end of the day, those are centralized. You have no guarantee that they'll be there. Or you could put it on Bitcoin and know that the chance that it's not still around in 2136 in some way, shape, or form is basically zero. You know, after that, all bets are off. Once subsidies are off the table, things get weird. Um, happy to discuss that separately. But like... If it can satisfy my need as a cypherpunk and it can satisfy potentially an artist's need to have their art exist well beyond their lifespan, it can satisfy a lot of other people's needs. And I think a lot of times we double down on, oh, yeah, it's the best money. It uh, circumvents the flaws in the fiat system. By the way, all these are true, but they're not all it is, because if that's all Bitcoin is, honestly, Bitcoin would be horrifically boring. Cypher, what, what is the, the, the cypherpunk ideals and how does Bitcoin embody it? Just out of curiosity. Okay, so I'm going to phrase it the way it is for me. If you're actually curious how the old guard, in quotes, of cypherpunks feels, uh, the cypherpunk manifesto has only been inscribed like 50 plus times as the uh, cypherpunk ghosts literally doing a project and bullying people into putting it on chain. I've never heard of like actually writing code. (laughs) (laughs) With that said, read the cypherpunk manifesto. It's excellent. Um, To me, what being a cypherpunk is, is the idea that I want strong cryptography in everybody's hands. From mine, I want to be able to, you know, really dive into it and get into the nitty gritty and like worry about nonces and all this fun stuff. But on the other extreme, I want your grandma to be able to open up an app and securely communicate without, you know, a third party looking over her shoulder digitally. Um, and the reason for this is that cryptography is the basis of the vast majority of freedoms. I say it pretty often. Uh, cryptography can defend everything except for the few things that have to be defended by violence still. And you know, that's not optimal. Maybe in the future we can figure out how to use cryptography for those as well. But for now, it's probably the best protection of freedoms you could ever hope to have. Um, and I'll give you examples. Uh, freedom of speech is protected by cryptography because if nobody except for your intended recipient can read it, nobody can tell you that what you're saying they don't like and it hurts their feelings. Um, your freedom of transaction of tra- transacting is protected by you know a blockchain that protects both your privacy and allows you to spend things without anybody's permission. You know, if I want to, I can go use Bitcoin, Monero, et cetera in other countries and 
function just fine without any dependence on my, my home country. So these are two concrete examples, but it's infinitely more than that when you start looking at cryptography outside of that. Um, you know, your health information is typically protected with cryptography. When you browse the internet, your security is protected with cryptography. I want to put more cryptography in everybody's hands. That's what being a cypherpunk is to me. It's funny that you said, though, that someone said it was money once and like you could you just can't unring a bell it's like when someone tells you a sandwich has cheese on it and you're like that's it and it's like they don't tell you there's like ham and lettuce and man like all the all the things you like about sandwiches on it and then you say you don't like sandwiches for five years until you find out what else is on a sandwich right i think that's a pretty digestible no pun intended way of saying that uh the initial perceptions and maybe even marketing ploys of a lot of the systems that we utilize are not really descriptive of their full self and I think Bitcoin is one of those things and blockchain technology overall, underlyingly, is uh, quite that. It's quite misunderstood. And that's actually why this show is called Don't Say NFT. It's because when you say NFT, whether it's appropriate or not, people roll their eyes uh, because it's become like a political party over the last few years um, where you could walk up to someone on the street and say, what do you think about NFTs? And they'd have like a, like a visceral hatred or love or something, a very polarized reaction to it that very few people would be like, you know, I don't really know much about them. They're like, I hate it because it's a monkey and it was $10 million and I can't afford it. And that makes me mad. Uh, that's what the word NFT has been meaning to people. So I've been trying to err on the side of using digital assets for this. And it's not to say that we can't use the word NFT because it's appropriate in some contexts. Uh, but for, for the sake of analyzing digital assets through the Bitcoin developers and people trying to encourage uh, ownership, equity, and security, I guess, is one of the main tenets. Uh, I think that this is like, this is the best way to start the conversation and then deep dive into anything else, but we can deep dive here too. We can talk about whatever the heck anybody wants to talk about. So thus far, we've talked about double spend. Um, we've talked about cryptocurrency, not just being money, but crypto, quickly, what secured encoded, what's the word for it? Cypher, how, how would you say that cryptographically secured ledger or something? I'm because I'm not a tech guy. So obviously Bitcoin's built on top of strong cryptography. But Bitcoin's cryptographic strength comes from time. Time is the greatest proponent of it. I mean, I, I hate to wrap us back to that, but like, if you only had two blocks to work with instead of the entire chain, aka you lost the time component other than the last 10 minutes, the cryptographic strength of that is expected to be able to be beaten in 10 minutes. So it's both cryptographically protected, but it's cryptographically and historically protected because without that chain of blocks, you're only as strong as how far back you can go. You know, to, to basically subvert the Bitcoin blockchain now, you would need to create, what, 800,000 new blocks, which would take you, uh, well, I'd say about 13 years, 13, 14 years. So the strength, the model itself is decidedly in favor of time. Yeah. And then on top of that, like, and this gets into like, like, how would you recreate the blocks that Cypher talks about? And this is why, this is one of the re reasons Bitcoin uses so much energy is that um, theoretically, and we could go down the rabbit hole here and talk about its merits and justification or challenges, but theoretically, you'd have to go and re-spend the energy and computation that got us to point. So when we say like Bitcoin uses so much energy and I, you know, you could also say that 
it would take that commensurate amount of energy in aggregate all the way for the past 14 years in order to attack Bitcoin in some ways. Now, there's a lot of different like, you know, just security and attack vectors we can talk about, but this is why blockchains are special is because they're designed to be really resilient. And Bitcoin specifically, and its model has proved quite resilient over the years. And I think we'll we'll see that it only gets stronger. Yeah, I was reading actually, so I came into this from the restaurant industry. I've been a bartender for 20 something years. And over the course of the pandemic, when I was home a bunch and didn't have to go into work all the time, I just, I dove really deep into what blockchain technology solves and is and can do and all that stuff. But I never read the Bitcoin white paper until pretty recently. And I think I understood vaguely that proof of work required miners and that proof of stake means you just put something somewhere and then it's validated somehow algorithmically via that. But I didn't realize that in order to fabricate a, a rather in order to change the Bitcoin blockchain, you would have to redo the entire thing, which would take the same amount of time as making it. And then also do the next one faster than the next kind of or something like that. So like the proof of work system, especially with a length or a blockchain length of whatever it is, 13, 15 years now, um, it's almost un undoable, right? Like I hate to say things like that because never say never and always, but that's kind of like the only thing as, as Michael say, I think this is one of the, one of the first podcasts that really got me into this was Michael Saylor talking on some otherwise very boring finance podcast, but he was talking about how Bitcoin was the most nuclear hardened thing that human beings had ever built. So I went in, down this rabbit hole about reading into why this was something that couldn't like why it was a virus, as he also says. And the reason that ordinals got me so pumped up, and I guess we, it's funny, we even we've not even said the word ordinal yet. The reason ordinals got me pumped up to begin with was because this felt like doing what we've been doing over the course of the last 30 plus thousand years, which is just scribbling goofy stuff on the inside of rock structures that we've either built or not that are going to be around forever. So like if you look at the first 10,000 or 1,000 or 100 inscriptions, they're like the same thing that we've been scribbling on walls since before like language existed. And it's just like fertility and mating and drugs and food and community and lizards. It's always lizards. You know, throughout all of history and time, we're always like scribbling lizards into the walls of things that can't be destroyed by anything other than like a supernova, you know? So I think there is something to Bitcoin being what it is. Um, it feels indestructible. And I'm curious to hear Spears, you sound like you have a lot to say about this. And I mean that in a really good way. Is do you even see a future where Bitcoin could be corrupted in that manner? Like, is there even an exploit that's remotely possible? Uh, oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, I think a lot of I think what uh, what turns people off from a lot of the hardcore Bitcoiners is that their their unwillingness to talk about some of the challenges and risks. But um, I think it's very, very resilient and secure. Um, there are and it, part of the thing is like I think it's predictable. We don't know what attack vectors may exist in the future. And we can only design a system so robust. But um, Bitcoin tends to be getting stronger. It seems that way. And I think more people using it and more eyeballs stress, stress testing the, you know, the way we can broadcast transactions. Thank you. The, the new cohort of ordinals folk, um, the, the stronger it becomes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we could probably, this is probably another, another episode, but, you know, we could talk about the specific additional attack vectors, but like um, these have been discussed ad nauseum. This is all that Bitcoiners talk about. So as you kind of now pay maybe more close attention to the world of Bitcoin, you'll hear us talk so much about, well, 
there is this specific attack or, you know, what if these people control this part of the development process? But like these are ongoing conversations and um, we hasn't been killed yet. It's the unknown unknown. You can't plan for something you don't know is coming, right? It's Cypher. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, I'll talk about some specific problems and then some on the technical side and then a couple of social problems that we're going to run into. Uh, specifically, was it 1.9 billion qubits to crack uh, about 25% of the total supply of Bitcoin that was using unhashed public keys? This is something that could very well happen. It's why within the next 20 years, we'll need to do an algorithm swap of some kind which will be absolute chaos. The miners will lose their minds. It's going to make them rather unhappy, but it'll be positive for the long-term outlook. Um, time locks. We're going to hit the upper bound of those within the next 20 years of what we should be using. Technically, we're good because it's you know, one bit more than that. You should never be using the upper bit when you're relying on a, a compiler to give you uh, unsigned values. It's just not a good idea. It leads to things breaking in weird and creative ways. Uh, then there's a social aspect. When we make these changes, because we now know that we have at least two changes in the next 20 years we have to make, uh, who, who decides this? It should be all of us. It should be equally all of us, effectively. Not, not in practice. That's not how the real world works. None, most of you aren't going to sit down and write code. But you should be able to say, this person has written code, and they've explained it well enough that I can understand what it's doing so I don't get wrecked by this. Um, is that going to happen or is everybody just going to roll to version, you know, 54 of Bitcoin core without questioning? Oh yeah. They added a bunch of standardness rules that I don't know what they do, but they're on by default. So I'll just, I'll just go with them. Um, and that's a social risk is that we've created, we've created soft centralization by our natural dependency on other people without questioning who those other people are, and if we personally believe in the work they're doing. Not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying you should think it through. You should always be thinking it through. You shouldn't trust me. You shouldn't trust Charlie. You shouldn't trust Donnie. I mean, that guy's nothing but trouble. I can't even so, go there. Exactly. I think you, you, what you're saying is a problem that's been human. Uh, it's been what we've been doing all along, right? This is when we vote representatives into politics. We know that we can't, as a society, vote on every issue because... One, there's never been the infrastructure to do that. And two, who would know what the heck to vote on? Because no one's educated on everything. It's not, it's not reasonable to ask anything of that. So I think there, there's got to be a system that is either built from what that problem is that then becomes something inherent to Bitcoin. How it gets there, I have no idea. But I mean, this is, this is not a new problem and there is no solution thus far, I don't think anyway. Said it in the past, the, the only way that Bitcoin remains decentralized long term is if the most important component within the Bitcoin network remains decentralized, which is the people. Any sort of decentralized system, the people need to be your most decentralized component before you even touch cryptography. Like I'm a massive proponent of cryptography. I want it in everybody's hands. But what I want more than that is people to act like a being who understands the need to think for themselves. Because if you don't do that in the first place, I can give you cryptography all day long, but if we all just pick the same private key because we're robots, um, it's not going to do us any good. So, like, we definitely be decentralized yourself and then think about which decentralized to run. Boom. Thanks, Cypher. English? 
Yeah, no, just following up on either it was Charlie or Cypher that mentioned that Bitcoin is stronger because of the time component and this kind of, um, it just kind of reminded me, it was kind of analogous and, and parallel to like the social consensus type of thing, which I've heard talk about, like with even with Ordinal specifically, um, that we don't even have to buy into this theory, but it becomes stronger over time because we have all agreed on it. So it's harder to kind of go back, um, even just from like a collectible standpoint. You know, I think if you take something that's co traditionally collected, uh, maybe baseball cards or something like that, maybe only a few people were really interested. But over time, it's just become such, you know, uh, agreed upon type of thing. So it was just interesting how this decentralized technology mimics kind of the way that the human mind and culture kind of comes together that over time things become stronger and harder to kind of scale back because i think if you wanted to like scale back and, and destroy the baseball card industry that'd be probably almost inter insurmountable at this point so i just thought there was kind of parallels there and it was kind of cool to think about yeah killer Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. If anybody has any closing remarks, I would love to continue the conversation. I just don't want to obligate anybody to more time. I want to be respectful of everybody's days today. Um, if there's any closing remarks, fire away. Otherwise, we can hit it. Yeah, Spears, please. Yeah, my closing remark is, um, you know, I've been in this space for so many years, and I feel like I'm still learning new, new things every day. And so... Um, I would like to say, you know, even the people you think are experts are not experts on everything. And so uh, it, this is still only, you know, 14 years in the making, and there's so much to be written and be discovered on this. So um, it is like never too late to dive deep and go back to first principles. Look at what our forefathers have written on cryptography and, and on um, and, and look at Satoshi's works and writings on blockchains, look at what Vitalik says, look at what people who are really smart in the space have uh, written and start there and then never can hurt go back to basics. We're not the product, we're the process. I, I've said this, I think through a lot of, I went to school for philosophy, so I spent a lot of time writing things that don't have answers. And the, one of the main things I came away with was just that this is, we're never done. And if you think you're done, you're wrong and you're behind now because there, there is no such thing as done. We're always chasing down some greater solution, some better piece of knowledge. And I think we'll never get there, but that's part of the beauty of human life. Anybody else feel like jumping in? And if that's a hard no, oh, English. Well, no, I was going to say it's been a lot of fun and I look forward to future ones. Uh, this has been a pretty cool show. And uh, what do you got more, 12, 14 more lined up? What's the schedule like? So there's there's a 14th episode, which will be the final technically, that is going to be like an anthropological. This is the zoom in. This is like what's going on underneath everything. Then there will be 12 episodes exploring the different logistical, cultural, social, et cetera, monetary, whatever um, pieces in a much more one hour deep dive on that topic. And uh, the, the shadow episode that's going to be the 15th or episode zero, I think it'll be listed as the you know, episode, whatever, before the first one, I think, is where I'm going to interview my mother and my girlfriend after they listen to the whole series and find out what their questions are, because I really want this to be digestible for, for people who have zero understanding. So I think that this was the episode that was the intro for the people who kind of know what's up. And then we're going to go real deep for 12 more. And then we're going to go anthropologically. What has this done to us? What are we doing to it? How is this solving problems that we've been trying to solve for thousands of years? And, uh, you know, how effective has it been so far and how effective is it going to be? And then I'm going to go, mom, girlfriend, did you get any of this? And like, where out do we need to be? Yeah. Out of curiosity, on a scale of one to 10, how familiar are they with crypto? 
Uh, my mother almost zero, except she's been watching me mess around with NFTs and like talk about how uh, I've never been friends with again, people bro. on the other side of the earth just because of the JPEG before. Okay. And about how there's like the the lack of geographic boundary, I think, is something that this universe has encouraged a lot more than anyone was able to permit. So I think they both sort of know about that, but otherwise they just know some of the key words. They know Bitcoin is a blockchain. Okay. That's kind of uh, it. The only reason I ask is because I, I wanted you to do a little experiment and just ask them, can you name three cryptocurrencies? And I'm just curious to see if Doge becomes is of them because apparently people who do this like on the street, like if you ask one of us anywhere, they'll probably just say, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, maybe Tez or wh whatever the case may be. Um, but apparently when you ask people on the street, they say Dogecoin, maybe Bitcoin, and then that's about as far as they get. So just curious. I think, so people like dogs. There's a meme episode that I'm really excited to deep dive this because I think that um, meme culture, the frog has taken over the meme culture because dogs can't because cat people exist. Uh, so everything is polarizing, including humans. In fact, humans are probably the most polarizing meme out there because we are us. So we judge every single thing about us. But everything else we view as a functional item or food or a mate or a partner or something like that. But like frogs, we just don't at all. And I think Pepe coin is going to be the next streetwise uh, only currency anybody knows about. When someone tells you this is money, then you're like, I'm angry because I already got the other money. I don't like that. But cryptocurrency doesn't mean mo money is a currency. But currency just means operating token of any system. So like, the, I don't think that it's common knowledge to most people. Maybe that's a question to ask my girlfriend and my mother is what is currency? Because they may just say money when in fact it means like ether is not money. It's the operating token of a system that can double as money in some way, of course, because you can buy and sell it. Cypher, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you triggered the part of my brain that gets excited about things. You're 100% right. Uh, your currency on a blockchain can be cloud compute credits, which is what ether is really. You're paying to execute code. Uh, or the way I, I've come to slowly start to entice Bitcoin it's a currency representing your passions. Like whatever you're passionate about, that's what your Bitcoin is for. Like I use my Bitcoin on things I care about. I inscribe the things I care about. Um, and that's, I don't know, it's freeing. Like when you stop thinking of it in terms of the way you've always, you know, worked with dollar bills or with ether, if you, you know, come from that ecosystem, I've done some work on that side of the house before. Uh, it kind of frees your brain up a little bit to realize that, no, I can just use this on things I'm passionate about and only the things I care about. I don't have to care about what what it means to somebody else. That's their battle to go through is to figure out what Bitcoin means to them. I think it's kind of fun that you you pay your rent in U.S. dollars. So you get to like feel a certain way about U.S. dollars, like they're mandatory. And then currently, because Bitcoin is, you know, we're not measuring the dollar in Bitcoin yet. So or maybe we will, maybe we won't. So like Bitcoin doesn't look like something you need. It looks like something you get to have. And I think that changes the the dynamic from one of mandate to one of exploratory nature, uh, which is just kind of inherently exciting. Right. And uh, I used to, I wrote a thread a little while ago. I'm not like a big thread writer and I don't get a lot of engagement because I don't like go for that. I don't do the GMs and stuff. Uh, it's just not in my nature to do that. But I did write a thread that proposed that the global economy is a DAO and that the U.S. dollar is its token. And if you like, if you write down, um, Susie joins a DAO, Susie contributes to DAO, Susie is paid in DAO token, Susie uses DAO token to elect officials and sway the system. Um, that's literally, you could replace Susie with Coca-Cola, like the company, and DAO token with the U.S. dollar, and you have like what we're already doing. 
I think where DAOs come into play and change the game a little bit, because currently they're just like, they're a vacation from reality, but they're really just doing what reality did already. Having it on chain and private when it needs to be and public when it needs to be is the defining factor of how cryptocurrency makes itself different from currency. So again, it's an immutable ledger that is either transparent or very well encoded such that your your information is, I don't know if Venezuela starts doing on-chain voting, you wouldn't really want that record to be public because people might be swayed to do something uh, that they wouldn't otherwise due to fear of re repercussion, right? So I think that the big difference, if we're to, I can't wait to ask my mother and my girlfriend. In fact, my girlfriend's 10 feet away from me. After this episode, she's not heard this. I'm gonna go ask her what currency is. And I'm gonna see if I can, you know, get her get her warmed up for this final episode we're gonna do. But I guess in conclusion, and this is kind of a collusion. I like not planning this out too much because I don't know, we don't know where this is going to go until it gets somewhere. And I think the natural place that this got to, which is us going, what is the difference between currency and cryptocurrency? I think we just like got to the foundational point of the first episode. Quantum, hit it. Yeah. Um, one interesting resource and as my closing remark that I've come across recently is, um, and I just started reading this, so I don't have a lot to offer here, but after I finish, I'll definitely offer up more. Um, it's a book called Soft War, and it's by uh, Major Jason P. Lowry, who I think he wrote this as his thesis. He was um, He was with the United States Space Force, and I think they like can't remember exactly his story, but in somehow they wanted him to do research on, um, on Bitcoin. And he, you know, took a very different approach. He's got some YouTubes, uh, that YouTube videos that he's been a part of and some other talks that you can get kind of like some high level, um, understanding of how he thinks about it. But then this book gets, you know, much more in depth on what he, um, you know, what he's discovered during his thesis. Um, but it's looking at Bitcoin as a as a defense or weapon system of some sort um, and how like the hashing power and all of the, you know, the, all of the algorithms kind of support um, support that thinking and been really interesting so far. Um, and I always like to give people resources where I can. So it's not just like coming from me, but from people that are, you know, spending equal or more time um, diving into specifics of, of the themes. That's why there exists more than one of us on the planet, so that some of us can save the others some time and they can go further than we did because of that. Thank you for your service to humanity, Quantum. If that's the end of it, then that's the end of it. I see no further hands and nobody's unmuting. Uh, thanks for showing up, everybody. Thanks for engaging in the conversation. My name is Donnie Clutterbuck. I don't think I've ever said that before. My name is Donnie Clutterbuck. This has been Don't Say NFT, the show where we don't say NFTs, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Adios, everybody. Have a wonderful day. This has been another episode of Don't Say NFT, the show where we usually don't say NFT. Thanks again to CryptoSapiens, Bankless DAO, and our sponsor, Goshen Network, building a Bitcoin L2. Have a great day, everybody.